Tonight, the judgments of, are upon Babylon and Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, and uh, a servant named Sheba, uh, Shebna. Telescopic predictions, and that is what it's like. I mean, Isaiah, he saw so much, so far ahead into the future, and he wrote so much of it down. You know, the critics like to pick on Daniel. Uh, he could not have prophesied so many things ahead of time like that. Well, what about Jeremiah and Isaiah? Do you, you think these guys just sat around making stuff up that came true? Uh, well, they didn't make it up, but it did come true. And the, the question is, is it relevant to us? 2,700 years later, are the prophecies of God to his people relevant to us? Absolutely. Um, they're absolutely, they may not apply directly to us, but they are, those, they belong in that category of things that edify us, that make us stronger. I should point out, by the way, there's a pollen alert. It's my, my yearly pollen shirt. I'm a week late. Anyway, this unstable region, uh, in the days of the prophets, uh, constantly in turmoil, the Jews were supposed to be spared all this nonsense, but they were not. I, I think, uh, you know, the longer you go in Christianity, if, if you are maturing in the faith, the more vital prayer becomes to you. The more you realize just how many things are impossible to repair through human hands and to the appeal to the Lord. It's no wonder Paul encouraged believers to pray without ceasing. Incidentally, Babylon and Assyria, they're located in modern Iraq. The Persians, uh, they're in mo modern Iran, today's Iran. And all of these fitted to what's, fit into what's happening in these prophecies. And he is saying in, in, in the beginning, when the first one up will be Babylon. And he's saying, there's a storm coming your way. And you're not going to survive it. Uh, so I'll, as we go forward, I'll try to clarify some of these things because it takes knowledge of history to, to, to kind of keep up with the prophets because they weave in and out. But verse 1, the burden against the wilderness of the sea as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert from a terrible land. Now this is Babylon, this wilderness of the sea. The context will bring that out as he moves forward. And verse 9 will just make it very clear to us. And uh, this wilderness by the sea, of course, um, the desert is a wilderness. There's nothing there spiritually. The sea is in constant turmoil. So the language that the prophet is, is choosing to use is, is on purpose. He's being creative. He'll use that quite a few times in, in this. Uh, Babylon, idolatrous. Uh, spiritually decadent, uh, moral, uh, immoral as the desert. Verse, uh, he continues, as a whirlwind in, in the south, as whirlwinds in the south, south pass through, so it comes from the desert from a terrible land. And so it will be sudden. It will sweep upon them. Ultimately, it will be the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, that will defeat the Babylonians and then uh, enter the city without, with hardly no bloodshed. Verse 2, A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, 
and the plunderer plunders. Go up, Elam, besiege, O media, all its sighing I have made, all, all its singing, uh, sighing, pardon me, I have made to sing. It should be singing. I've, I've made to cease. And so uh, God is getting down to business with his judgments. Elam and the Medes, they are under Persian authority. The Persians will defeat the Babylonians in war, but they won't enter the city of Babylon through violence. They will get into the city in the night, uh, Daniel 5, when the handwriting is on the wall. That's the night that the Persians, the Medes and the Persians entered the city and, and took it over. And there was no more Babylon, Babylonian kingdom after that. Verse 3, therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. Verse 4, my heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. So the metaphors that he is using depicting his reaction to the bad news what he saw as a prophet concerning the Babylonians, who at this time in the history that he wrote this, that he saw these visions, Babylon was not the world power. Syria was still the power. It'd be a hundred years, over a hundred years, before the Babylonians would defeat the, the Assyrians. And he sees what's going to happen, and he has a physical reaction to this. It was similar with Moab, when he gave the, the visions over Moab. And this is... Um, it speaks to the heart of the man. He's part of the human experience. He's not a self-righteous religious Jew who is removed from the, the misery of the Gentiles. He's very much plugged in. It is no surprise that God gives a man like this so much vision. To Again, as though he's looking through a telescope and he's seeing things that are so far away and the details that belong to these events. Um, the Elamites and the Medes, they're part of the Persian army that defeated Babylon in 539 years before the Christ. But Babylon and Assyria, they would have war with two big shootouts with each other, two wars. Assyria won the first one. Some 84 years later, Babylon won the second and they became the world power. The first time the Assyrians beat the Babylonians, that meant doom for Judah. Because the, they, the Assyrians figured, you know, the, the, the Judah is sending to Babylon to have a union against us, to team up against us. And so they, they, they took care of the Babylonians and they came down and, and conquered uh, almost all of Judah. And everything except Jerusalem. And that's only because the Lord sent his angel on behalf of the Jews. As I mentioned, Babylon won the second war with each other, and we read this, and to us this is boring, but this was fantastic news if you were a Jew, especially if you were coming out of the captivity, which hasn't happened yet in Isaiah's day. Again, that's, that's 170 years away. But when it does, the Jews are going to look at these prophecies, yep, all this happened. It happened around our lifetime and leading up to it. You would think that the Jews in the days of Jeremiah would have, you know, would have read these prophecies because Jeremiah rings in on a lot of them and he echoes Isaiah. But it didn't register. Uh, they didn't want it. 
And that's what we're up against when we talk about the prophecies in the New Testament and, and the Old, that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, that there will be a one-world government under an Antichrist, that there will be this uh, just this uh, time of, uh, of Antichrist sentiment that will be global unlike ever before. And even though the evidence is right in front of folks, they won't receive it. Well, um, ultimately, his prophecies against Babylon are fulfilled against Antichrist because his regime and that culture that supports him will be as Babylon was. We talked about this in in, uh, earlier chapters. It's mentioned in Revelation 14 and Revelation 18. Politically, culturally, economically, spiritually, uh, it will be just as wicked as as Babylon was to God. And so he says in verse 3, the pain, the pangs, the distress, the dismay, the fearfulness, the fear, a real reaction uh, he had to seeing these things. That's just amazing. God is is saying to Isaiah, I'm going to show you some things. And Isaiah, he, he was almost sick over what he saw. Verse 5, prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink, arise, you princes, anoint the shield. For thus has the Lord said to me, go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. Now he's using sort of poetic language. He's the watchman ultimately, but he's telling the leaders of these uh, kingdoms uh, of Babylon to set your watchman because it's coming. The enemy is going to come. And you're going to fall. Uh, but uh, on the other side, the spiritual side, Isaiah is the watchman. And as I mentioned, I, Daniel 5 records the fall of Babylon at Belshazzar's feast. And you see, Babylon thought they were impregnable. They lost on the battlefield, but that's all right. Nobody can get into the city. And of course, the, the, the Persians, they, they found entrance to the, in the city through the waterways. And they did get in, and, and they killed Belshazzar that night. Uh, Daniel survived. They were caught unprepared. And Isaiah warning them a hundred years earlier, go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. But they didn't bother with this. Their complacency was their downfall. Uh, verse, 20, verse 7, And he saw a chariot, the watchman that is, with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. Then he cried, a lion, my lord, I stand continual, continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. And the very poetic language he's using here. And the Hebrew brings this out. The watchman is the prophet. But he's, he's sort of, you know, he's running parallel to what the watchman should be for the Babylonians. But spiritually, he's the watchman. He sees the approaching army on the Babylonians. And um, when he says, a lion, my Lord, the force of the words, and the Hebrew backs this up, is that the watchman is the lion. He's brave. He's standing his post, as, as Habakkuk said. I will stand, stand and watch and see, stand my post and see how he will answer me. And so this is a reference to having the nerve, the courage to see what is happening, to report it in detail, to not run from his post and panic. And it is a dual, again, has a dual application to what a watchman should be on guard duty 
and what the prophet is receiving the vision. The lookout is to tell only what he is, uh, what he sees. He is to report it that way, and it would take a man of courage to do it. And uh, is that not true? Is it not true that it takes courage to be a Christian in front of opposition? I mean, anybody can sing psalms and hymns in the church when, when you're around a bunch of believers. But what about when you're out face to face and you see things that the Bible has told you uh, are, and, and you have the opportunity to, sh- to say it, to share it? It's going to take courage. You have to say, I, a lion is the watchman. Uh, I'm lion-hearted. I, I'm not going to back down from what I have to say. And Christians have done that for centuries. Um, They've gone to the stake, abiding in Christ all the way. Verse 9, And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. And so the watchman proclaims the tragic end of mighty Babylon that was supposed to be invincible. And it, it happened uh, initially under the Assyrians, uh, but uh, when, when the Assyrians beat them on the battlefield, Babylon wasn't as great as it would be when Nebuchadnezzar becomes king. His father very much part of that. Anyhow, uh, it will finally happen at the Persians and then spiritually be fulfilled in Antichrist. And so his prediction looks forward to the ultimate end of this great enemy of God in the end times. And John verifies this, as does Jeremiah. Um, How much more to pick out of this that will maybe wake you up? (laughs) If if you're saying, boy, there's a lot of history, a lot of detail. What does it have to do with me? It has everything to do with the fact that here you have a man receiving this kind of prophecy and telling it like it is going to happen, even though he's not going to live to see any of it. He's not going to live to see the Assyrians... uh, and, and the Babylonians fight. In fact, on the way to that fight, a hundred years from now, from the time that Isaiah said these things, Josiah, that good king, will be slain, uh, poking his nose where it didn't belong. And the four kings after him, were, his children, were, were, well, they were all rotten. Uh, anyway, all the carved images of her gods, he has broken to the ground. Now, the Babylonians were known to treat idols of other people's gods and even their own gods uh, as embodiments of the God. The God was in that idol. And they would dress the idols. They would put food out to feed it. You see this now. You go to a, you know, a Thai restaurant, if they're practicing that type of religion, you'll see little food out offered to their gods. And he never eats it. It's just wasted food. And you would think that they would connect it. You would say, no, somehow the physical and the spiritual are not crossing over. Maybe there's no one there, as Isaiah said. You know, shout louder. Maybe he's busy. So anyhow, uh, uh, they would treat these. They would dress them up and parade them around during festivals, things like that. But they also respected the gods of the conquered peoples many times in that world. And they would take those gods back to their temple and put it there as a trophy. And eventually, we would go back to the people. And we saw this in First Samuel 5, when the Philistines got hold of the ark. They put it in the temple of Dagon. And 
they were doggone when they found that their, their statue of doggone was uh, his hands his hands fell off his head. Anyway, Daniel chapter one also talks about this very thing, and so the idol worshippers they feared that if they treated the idols the wrong way, there would be retaliation, and so they would they would show some respect for the conquered people, and. Uh, but here, all the carved images of her gods, he has broken to the ground. Yahweh was doing that long before this took place. Uh, David, King David would pulverize them. Josiah destroyed them. Verse 10, O my threshing, O my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. Well, this is how revelation or prophecy is supposed to come to us. This is how it is imparted. And the inspiration behind the revelation, of course, is is God. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Paul says, I'm a believer too, and I've received this from the Holy Spirit. And I'm sharing these things that I have from him with you. And that's what Isaiah is saying here in verse 10. That which I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. And again, how can he say this with such authority? And these things are so far away. Because uh, it was a genuine work of God in his life. Verse 11, the burden against Duma, he calls me out to Sierra, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And so he's continuing with this watchman who is... To see the trouble that is coming. Now he's talking about Edom. He's, he's going back away from Babylon, which is in the future. And he's coming back to the time that he's living in. Assyria, that world tyrant in that region. Or that, should, that world tyrant. The tyrant in that region. And uh, their armies, of course, put dread into all the people there. The Edomites included. The Edomites lived... Uh, by these fast food chains. That's why they call them the Edomites. <laughs> okay, they live south of the Dead Sea. Uh, that's where their territory was. And so you had the Edomites and going north, you had Moab and then Ammon. Today, all of that is in modern Jordan, just across the Jordan River. And I, I don't know why they didn't call it the Israel, the Israeli River. Why, why did they call it? Why does Jordan get to name it? Okay, I'm digressing coming back to this <laughs> the uh <clears throat> the dread that they they were feeling in those days now he's going to personify edom asking it you know they're going to ask him what hope do we have and it's not like he was in actual dialogue with these people he's he's preaching and he's writing these prophecies and it's for his readers to look at this and and ask questions and to be moved apparently it was well done Enough to keep it in circulation. They didn't just write his prophecies down and say, boy, this stuff is crazy. Who can understand it? And throw it away. They preserved it because they got it. Whether, they be- whether all the peoples believe it or not, of course, uh, that's another matter. But the righteous, they knew that this was God's word to the prophet. And it, so this word, Duma, it means silence. And as is the custom of Isaiah, he has wordplay all over the place, 
uh, it would be nice if we all could speak the ancient Hebrew and read it that way. We wouldn't have to, it would be right there in front of us. So he moves one letter from Adam or Edom, and he, he moves it to Duma, and, and, which means silence. It's a creative way of saying Edom will be silenced. Edom will be no more. And we know this is Edom because he mentions Seir, and that is, uh, again, his reference to them indicates that using Duma is wordplay, a corruption of Edom. In that territory, there's Petra, that rock city exists, and also uh, Aaron is believed to have been buried on Mount Hor, which is in the territory of Edom. Uh, though they're not sure where that mountain is, they know it's, we do know it's in Edom's territory. Anyway, they were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And Esau was a man's man, but he just wasn't spiritual. Spiritual things did not move him. They did move Jacob, even though Jacob was, you know, a swindler. Uh, but he was, he was more sensitive to the spiritual realm. Truly, God is in this place, and I knew it not. Well, we never hear of, you know, the God of Esau. We never hear of Esau calling on the Lord. Uh, and that's, that's a, an accurate portrayal. And it's a spirit and attitude that God says, I hate that attitude. Anyhow, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. And Esau was nicknamed Edom, which means red. And that territory, the landscape, is, is the, the mountains, the, the, the soil, there's redness to it. Uh, as I mentioned, south of the Dead Sea. These people, they did not get along with the Jews. The psalmist writes about it, and it's in the history. Uh, But they would be conquered by the Assyrians, and after the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, after Christ had ascended to heaven, we don't read of them anymore. Uh, Herod, the think he was so great. um, I mean, how do you say Herod the Great and the man was a monster? You know, how do you, you need to revise that. Anyway, he was an Edomite, as were the Herods, and uh, they pass off the scene. Verse 12, the watchman said, the morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. And so he, there's an invitation here. He says, you know, ask, you know, return and come back. Seek Yahweh, is, is what the watchman's message is. To those who would hear, Edom, of course, declines the invitation. Uh, we, they never turn to Yahweh, though the Herods thought they were friends of, of Yahweh, building the temple and the other things, but they were, they were, they were false all, the whole time. Um, verse 13, the burden against Arabia in the forest, which is really the thicket in Arabia, you will lodge, O oh, you traveling companies of the Dedanites. Verse 14, O oh, inhabitants of the land of Timah, bring water to him who is thirsty with the bread. They, will meet, they met him who fled. Verse 15, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. Verse 16, Thus Yahweh has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. Verse 17, and the remainder of the number of archers and the mighty men of the people of Kedar will be diminished, for the Lord God 
the Lord Yahweh of Israel has spoken it. So this is Arabia. And the Dedanites were the descendants of Abraham and Keturah. And you, you would think, you know, well, they weren't from the, the chosen son, Isaac. Abraham had no less than 12 sons with Keturah after Sarah had died. Um, and these Arabians, the children of Keturah and Ishmael, another son of Abraham, are known to us as the Arabs today. And Isaiah, he saw the that the day was going to come when the Arab caravans traveling these routes would be hiding from the Assyrian army, and that the desert peoples from Timah, an oasis town, would bring relief to them. But they, they would eventually be driven, the, the, uh, the Arabs, deeper into the desert. And the prophet says within a year, the glory of, of these events, within the year, the glory of Arabi- the Arabian tribes would be gone. And they were powerful in the desert, uh, well-respected, and uh, that would all be be gone. Again, uh, to reference um, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, his task to fight the Turks that were in that part of the world during World War I was to unite the Arab tribes into a fighting force because they fought each other so much that you couldn't do anything with them. And he succeeded in doing it in doing that, and uh, they were successful in driving the Turks out, and um, uh, that's, then the British ended up with Jerusalem, and that's how eventually the Jews got back into Jerusalem through, through the British. Uh, well, uh, you can go to Jerusalem now, and you can still see uh, old jailhouses from the, the British that the British Army built when they were uh, occupying Israel before they turned it over uh, to the Jews. So that history there is, is um, f- f- there's fulfillment in, in this history. Uh, the, Kid, the Kidar, again, these Arabian tribes from, uh, from, from uh, Abraham. So uh, we, well, there's a difference here. We have the Dedanites, they're from Abraham and Keturah, but the ones from Qatar are from Ishmael and Sarah. So these people are just, that's what happened to them. And if you, whatever happened to his family, well, that's what happened to them. And eventually the Arabs, they're still there. In fact, the Jews today in Israel, many of them refer to the Arabs as their cousins. Uh, verse 22. The burden against the valley of vision, what ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops. <laughs> well, without knowing uh, what's happening, he's now turning his attention to Jerusalem, where he says the burden against the valley of vision. What ails you? That part, what ails you? It, it, what ails you now? It sounds like now what's the problem? But that's not what it... Uh, the, I think a better word is, you know, what's going on now? Would have maybe... Not because the translators are wrong, but maybe how we perceive that. Well, you know, what ails you now? But it is not uh, spoken in that sense. Anyway, Jerusalem, this is now going to refer to the Babylonian siege. Parts of it apply to the Assyrian siege also. The Assyrians besieged Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord came, wiped out the Assyrian army, 185,000 in one night. The Assyrians go away, but later come the Babylonians. So God wanted to spare his people of all of it. It was judgment upon them. And uh, so metaphorically, 
this valley of vision uh, reminds us of Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's called a, a cryptic heading. But it, it implies opportunity. The word vision implies opportunity to respond to God. Knowledge of truth demands a greater accountability. And so it's appropriate that Isaiah would refer to uh, Jerusalem as that valley of vision. Of course, it was like a cashew shape around the Temple Mount. There are two valleys, the Hinoam Valley and the um, Kidron Valley. Uh, anyway, so those valleys are very much part of Jerusalem and, and her history. David crossed over the Kidron Valley, leaving Jerusalem, fleeing Absalom with his head covered, with no shoes on, he was weeping. And uh, it's a very, you know, to the Jews, these things would mean a lot more than maybe what they mean mean to us. Um, you know, if you, if you lived uh, maybe in the early 1800s, places like Lexington and Concord would mean a lot to you. That's where the British were beaten back. But now we're removed, and to us, there are exit signs on, on the expressway. Well, same with the Jews. These, these things meant something to them, and they're supposed to mean something today. We need to see more rabbis give verse-by-verse exposition of their Old Testament and stop quoting the rabbis. And there, I, I know there was one out there doing it for a while. I don't know whatever happened with that. I don't follow it. But uh, it would cause them to ask more questions. Maybe that's why. You know, Rome suppressed the scripture by, you know, you can't read it except in Latin when they knew the people didn't read the Latin because they didn't want them to get the knowledge. And, well, that's what this AI is all about, is it not? The suppression of knowledge, artificial intelligence. You do a Google search on, say, you know, how many murders in Richmond in, in, in 2022, and the, the data has been so swayed that it tells you, oh, five. I'm just giving this an example. When maybe there's 105. And what happens is they shape how people think. They, they create a reality that is false. And people act on that. And this is how they get reelected. They stay in power with this misinformation, this false information, which is going to be on the moon when, when the church is raptured. On, on earth, it's going to be just out of control. The, the, the planet will be drunk with that. Uh, you know, Daniel calls him... Uh, he says he spoke with uh, pompous words. And I believe that's the media that he has under his control. He's just a big mouth. And it would, it, it would be limited if it was just his character. Boy, you know, he's like Mussolini, you know. He just walks around talking about stuff he can't do. No, it's, it's going to be that he has control of what is said. And it's going to be all lies. And those who are left here will, will be left here that... Those who have heard the gospel, they will be left here because they did not have the love of the truth, but they liked lies. And we have people like that today. You can convict somebody, man, of their sin and the solution, and they just won't take the step towards salvation. And what is God supposed to do with someone like that? What should God do when there's two people and he preaches the, has someone preach the gospel to one and he receives it, he repents, I'm a sinner, forgive me, I come to Christ, let him be my Lord. And then next to him is another person that gets preached the same message and he doesn't want to hear it. It's the two thieves on the cross. What's God supposed to do with that? Well, universalism teaches that, well, they both end up in heaven. No, they don't. Well, that's universalism. That's also a lie. It's false teaching. And uh, it was written... Uh, in hell. 
And uh, it does come down to what a person believes. For us, when we are faced with these things, if the people are in close proximity to us in our lives, it's likely an indication that we are supposed to not be giving up on prayer on those people, but fight that war on our knees, make our contribution there. For me, um, my contribution is try to preach on things that God tells me to preach. But that's not all of it. I pray for a lot of the people that I know are um, in, 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 Satan's, in Satan's grasp. And I know that other Christians do the same. Anyway, he says in verse, two, in verse 1 that you have all gone up to the housetops. So what's happening here is uh, there's, there's judgment coming. And the watchman is uh, saying to the people of Jerusalem, judgment is coming. And in this, he's, he's depicting their attitude. They're going, instead of lamentations, the housetop was the place where you would broadcast the bad news, where you'd gather if there were bad news coming. Uh, instead of lamentation, uh, it was uh, community joy. They're having parties on the rooftops. When Jesus said, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. And that's the language that... Um, is coming from Isaiah. He is saying to the people, this is news that needs to be broadcast, that there's a judgment coming, and it's coming on Jerusalem. But you instead are throwing parties. Thus, verse 2, you are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. So he's telling them what's coming, what he's seeing. It's a double application. Spiritually, they're dead, not with the sword, but because of their apostasy. But also, when the siege comes, it will bring famine. When the Babylonian siege comes, and that's what he's talking about, uh, they're not going to die on the battlefield. They're going to die in the city of a slow and awful death, that of starvation. And here they are in the land of milk and honey, Never mind how they got there. They don't care that they were emancipated from Egypt, that they were once slaves and now they're free. They don't care. They don't believe their own history. When I grew up in high school, they gave you European history. I learned my European history and American history from war movies. I didn't learn anything. I can't tell you one thing I learned in those classes. Maybe that's where I first heard the word name Picasso. I don't know. But why weren't they giving me my history? As a Jew, why aren't the Jews hungry for their history, which is, you can't get God out of it. You can't get Yahweh out of it. Well, that's the problem Isaiah had. He saw that the people would be dying and not on the battlefield. Uh, Isaiah alone sees where their escapism is leading them. Escapism. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted to have a party. They didn't want him to talk conviction. And he's saying, well, this is where it's going. Verse 3, all your rulers have fled together. They have captured, uh, they are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Well, when Babylon took Jerusalem, uh, the warriors and the king fled the city, left the besieged people in the city. It was sort of, you know, we're going to get away. Let them, you know, let them, whatever happens, happens. And 
Over a century away, he's telling them that there's going to be famine. Jeremiah writes about it in Lamentations 4. He talks about the coward leaders, which we read about in 2 Kings 25. And then he talks about, Isaiah does when we get further down, about the houses in Jerusalem that are going to be dismantled so that they can use the materials to fortify the city against a siege. And it's all going to fail. Verse 4, Therefore I said, Look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of my daughter, uh, the daughter of my people. And now he's recording his own feelings concerning Jerusalem's doom, as he did with Babylon and earlier with Moab. Uh, this, uh, this is amazing to me, that you have a man that is faced with wicked people like we are. The, the, the corrupt and evil politicians that infest the land and seem to be just increasing. And you, just, you say to yourself, who is voting these people in to office? Well, the voting machines, <laughs> the voting machines are voting them in. Anyway, you know, the, the, Senate, the, the, the initial feeling, the surge is bitterness towards them, anger. And here we have a prophet that is faced with a people who are bringing judgment on themselves because of how they treat God. And he sees what's going to happen to them, and he weeps bitterly. It affects him. The, the, as the Babylonians who go, are going to bring the siege. He's a man in touch with God. It reflects the heart of God that God does not get satisfaction out of judging the wicked. Which is one reason why people who think that God does are so bitter towards God. And so he sees what they do not see. Incompetence, the apostasy, death, defection, and that they are captured. Um, how mature this man is, is uh, at the carnage, the avoidable carnage that's not avoided. Verse 5, For it is a day of trouble, treading down, and perplexity by the Lord Yahweh of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls of the crime. Uh, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Again, poetic type language, trying to uh, keep the readers engaged, not doing a very good job with us, but, <laughs> but he did with them. Uh, he, where it says, for, and for it is a day, is a further explanation. And, uh, you know, just, uh, what do you do? The judgments are coming. The people, you know, the near judgments and the future judgments, they're coming. Jesus brings this up. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation is near. And, of course, that is not a single verse that tells us, because Jerusalem has been surrounded by armies before, and the end hasn't happened. It goes with other prophecies, you know, the temple being rebuilt. The Antichrist committing the abomination of desolation. We know that there's another one coming. There was one in the days that Daniel prophesied, Antiochus, and that's past. And there's another one coming. Zechariah 12, and it shall happen in that day. I read this last session in Isaiah. That Jerusalem, that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples. All who would heave it away 
will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Well, I don't know. I don't follow the news too much, but Jerusalem's not in the news too much these days. Not like it's been in the past, you know, the, the Arabs, and they're not Palestinians. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. These are Arab people. And when the Jews were coming, giving their land back, they gave the Arab people a chance to go to Jordan where they came from. That they came and took over Jerusalem when the Jews were put out. And they said, we're coming, we're getting the, the British giving us a, a state of our own, and you can leave. And many of them opted to stay. And the Arab world was saying, oh, they're going to slaughter you, they're going to torture you, they're going to do all these horrible things to you. And, and none of that happened. And it is an act of Satan to say, well, these are Palestinian people and that's their land. They've been there from the... No, they were not. They're Arab peoples. They're not Canaanites. The Canaanites are gone. Uh, the, uh, it's just a, a suppression of the truth and, and a distortion of the truth. And the world... Um, Israel's not in the news right now, but she will be again. It's, it's not going to stop because the world wants to get rid of her. I see, though, I see in the news little things about anti-Semitism on the rise. Well, who can believe anything nowadays? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. If you wanted to know, if you Googled the color of your grass, would you trust the answer? I wouldn't. He is lying. What color? What shade green? Anyway, verse 6. Elam bore the quiver with the chariots of men and the horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield, so they're getting ready for war. Verse 7, it shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. Well, the watchman in the earlier verses, of course, was, saw the, the chariots with the donkeys, the camels, and the horses, and, and here we're back to this. This is likely Assyria. He bounces back and forth. No wonder nobody can understand these things without hours of study, right? Like, uh, it would have been nice if um, we had little notes from Isaiah. Anyway, verse 8, he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. So the temple is still up, this house of the forest uh, from Solomon. Uh, Verse 9, You also saw the damage of the city of David, that it was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. We know that this is Jerusalem that he's been talking about from the first verse, verse 10. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. So the Valley of Vision confirmed here that it is Jerusalem. We know it's likely, very likely, Hezekiah's reign because he fortified Jerusalem this way. The armor of the house of the forest, constructed by Solomon out of cedar wood and served as an armory, among other things. Verse 11, you also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to your maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. Well, I've been saying, uh, I'm sure others have too, we look around at humanity and we see the incredible achievements uh, you know, just, uh, you know, waste processing plants. It's just amazing what cities can do. Uh, the, the buildings, just the, the, the recreational areas, the parks. It's amazing things as we, as we count it. But then not to God. God, God says, Man, I, you know, wait till you get to heaven. You're going to realize you lived in a dump. 
And uh, so what's happening here is the, the men were, the people were doing these things to protect themselves, but they wouldn't look to God. Hezekiah was looking to God. He and Isaiah worked tirelessly to try to get the people revived. And whatever revival that these good kings saw was just on the surface. The people would go home to their idols. And we have we see this with some churchgoers. They come to church, they act like they're into church, and really they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, and they don't want to hear the gospel. Anyway, the prophet, he personifies a city, as is the habit. You also made a reservoir between the two walls. Well, the, the people did, of course, doing that. That's who he's ad- addressing here. Um, other kings fortified the city in the past, but they were godly men, Jehoshaphat, David, Uzziah, etc. The list goes on. But they were willfully and conveniently oblivious to God. Verse 12. And in that day, the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. Well, he called them to pay attention, to grasp the severity of the situation. But again, they're on the rooftop having fun with these things. Their life goes on. You know, what could be wrong? Look at the, look at the decadent cities today. Um, the suburbs, the areas where the other people are, you know, like Philadelphia and Los Angeles, is just they have these shanty towns. and just horrific. But if you go down to certain other areas, it's like, boy, this is really nice. Uh, just the man is... is Without God is, is not getting it right. He, if best, he gets it right on the surface. And again, knowledge of the truth demands greater re, a greater reaction. Ecclesiastes 3, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Well, they just wanted to dance. Fools mock at sin, it says in Proverbs 14.9. James says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And James was saying, you know, there's a time where... Levity is not it. It's not party time. It's work to be done. Uh, this reference to baldness and uh, girding with sackcloth is, or cultural exhibitions of sorrow and distress. And he's trying to say to the people, it's going to, be, it's going to get ugly if you continue building up your life without your God. Verse 13 But instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, he's not verbalizing their words, but their attitudes. They're just, you know, this carefree escapism. Just this is, you know, I I get off of work and I just want to have fun. I don't want to think about judgment and, and sin and righteousness and all that. And Isaiah says, well, that comes with a price. And so this misguided practice of doubling down with an irrational defense exhibited by the world, you show them the truth of Christ and they, they just double down against it. And it is uh, an enigma to us. The irrationale that is applied to Jesus Christ is just that. It's irrational. When he says, come, let us reason, they said, no, we want no parts of reason on this one. We can reason to you about, you know, sports statistics. We can reason to you about our financial portfolio. There are many things we can reason with you about. Jesus Christ is not one of them. Uh, and that's uh, for, Yah- for Isaiah, it was Yahweh. Um, they did everything as people go except trust God. Verse 14, then it was revealed in my hearing 
by Yahweh of hosts, Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord Yahweh of hosts. So God says, fine, you don't want me. There's, there's no solution for that. There's, you either come to me or you, you're judged. The whole passage gives us this contrast of salvation by faith versus salvation by the efforts of men. They felt that the good they did for their society, their kingdom was enough. And the prophets were there to say, no, it is not. In fact, when Amos comes along, he starts off saying, well, let's judge these people around us. And he starts prophesying about all the peoples around Israel, and they're loving this. And then he starts on them, Israel and Judah. And they, they hated him for it. And don't we have the same thing? You, they're sacred cows. Now, today's sacred cows, homosexuality. You can't say anything evil against that. And then they took it to, taken it to another level now. And uh, you can't say anything. And so the, uh, the comeback is, so let me get this right. I have to believe in what you believe. I'm not free to believe in what I believe. And if I believe in what I believe, somehow I become wicked. Well, God's saying that to you. But he's, but he's going to back it up. And because he's not doing it now, you think you're getting away with it. Well, anyhow, uh, they're going to hate us even more as, as we move forward. We're all looking for somebody to finally put a silver bullet in this werewolf. It ain't going to happen. It's going to just get worse. But what can happen, so that's very encouraging. What can happen is we can be very successful in the lives of people around us. Because the, the evil is not taking everybody. It's taking the ones that reject the gospel. And that's where we come in to try to be used by God to reduce that number. And because God knows who it is doesn't mean he's causing it. And he's also giving us the invitation to be part of it. Well, their sin was of pride and self-reliance. I've got to speed. Okay, we're coming to it now. Uh, But instead of repentance, they just wanted to indulge. Verse 15, uh, now we come to Shebna. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, verse 16, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hewns himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? I'll get to that in a moment. Verse 17, indeed, Yahweh will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. So here's this man, Shebna. He is the second in command in in Judah, next to the king. Now, if the king dies, he will not become king because he's not of the royal line. But he's 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 the chief of staff for the king. He's the steward in the kingdom. Uh, It's the individual, it's not a nation. And so we we know this is Hezekiah's time. Because when the Assyrians surround Jerusalem, Shebna, who will be demoted by that time, he goes out with two others, and, uh, and he, he parleys with, with Rabshakeh, the commander of the Assyrian army. We'll, we'll get to that in chapter 36, which I wish we were in already. <laughs> Any of you too, right? So, look, if I'm going to suffer, you're going with me. Misery loves company. Anyhow, coming back to this, uh, where he says, uh, let's see, go tell this steward. In the the Hebrew, it is there. uh, The the translators have inserted this, but it's it's there in the Hebrew. 
And it expresses at most divine contempt for this man and at least annoyance for him. And pride is his problem. Uh, So he has a significant amount of authority, and yet he is presumptuous, very much so, that he is going to carve out for himself a tomb fit for a king. But he's not the king, and he's not supposed to do this. This is self-exaltation, inspired by pride, self-serving pride, and he wants this memorial for himself. And he draws divine condemnation. It angers Hezekiah. That's why he he demotes him and raises up someone else in his his place. God says, I'm going to fling you away. That's pretty intense. And the prophet Isaiah sounds like he doesn't like this guy. He's like, I'm so hoping we get a prophecy on him. (laughs) All right. Anyway, so when we get to 36, he's going to show up as a scribe, meaning he's demoted, which tells us Hezekiah felt, well, he's very valuable, he's got a lot of information on how things run, plus maybe he'll keep him around, keep an eye on him, and maybe he'll come out of it. Well, Eliakim will be his replacement, and uh, we, when it says here in verse 17, O mighty man, Isaiah is referring to Shebna's estimation of himself. God is not calling him a mighty man, God's going to fling him away. But Shebna must, this is telling us, he had a lot of power. He was a a big player in the kingdom. And he got is full of himself, and he decides, I'm going to make a monument for, me, monument for me. Who else did this? Absalom. Neither one of them were buried in that tomb that they carved out for themselves. Uh, and so anyway, he can't resist God. Verse 18, he will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So somehow he goes out of the country and Isaiah says, in case you missed verse 17 about God flinging you away, he's going to throw you away like a ball. So he's very clear on this. And he evidently goes out and, and they kill him. And he doesn't get buried in his own tomb. Verse 19, so I will drive you out of your office and from your position, he will pull you down. And uh, so, again, Proverbs sixteen eighteen. we all know it. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So a pride of like, you know, you know I'm, I'm it. I'm pretty special. And the haughty is I'm so special, I'm not even going to talk to you. That, that kind of paints the picture for us. And I, again, I don't think Isaiah liked this guy. I think he knew who he was. Verse 20, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him, verse 22, with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So this is a heavy hit. He says, you know, everything you have is going to be, you're losing it. Someone else is going to get it. And you, Isaiah's going to be driving around town in your chariot, in your car, and you're going to see him do it. And so he loses his position to El- Eliakim. Uh, Revelation 3.11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Well, he's losing his. In verse 21, instead of uh, helping the people, he exploited them. And uh, Eliakim, however, is going to help not exploit them. Eliakim's going to be like a father to them. And the reference to the key is the authority. 
uh, good for the nation. Verse 22, the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. That's on Eliakim. So he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. So Eliakim's going to have all the power that Shebna lost. There's a messianic value here. Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the church in Philadelphia. That's us. Okay, it's up here. Uh, all right. Look, please hurry up. <laughs> These things says he who is holy and he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And so there's the total authority of Christ. And we see an element in Eliakim. Verse 23, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. And we know that the his dad was going to be pride of Eliakim, but this is Messianic also, verse 24. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity for the cups uh, to all the pitchers. And so he's going to be a dependable peg. This is Christ, of course. It is also, in a smaller sense, Eliakim. He's anchored. He's anchored into his office, he's anchored into the wall, that language. You can hang many burdens on him, and he'll hold it. And Eliakim on a smaller level, Christ on the fuller level. Uh, verse 25. In that day, says Yahweh of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for Yahweh has spoken. Huh? What? You just got through telling us he's a secure pay. Well, he's not talking about Eliakim now. He's talking about the office in Jerusalem. It's all going to fall apart. After Hezekiah comes his son Manasseh. The treachery of King Manasseh followed the righteous work of King Hezekiah. And then after Manasseh came more wicked ones. Well, Josiah would be the last. And then it just, it, it all fell apart. It was not able to hold anything together, and that office was gone when the Babylonians came. Only Emmanuel can do it. Of, his in, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his house, to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Imagine Isaiah saying that when he had all these rotten kings around him, like we have today. Uh, and there's just an... Inf I don't know. I, I didn't live... 80 years ago to tell you how many bad politicians there are. I know there were a lot of them, but, but man, today they seem like all over. They even strut around when they're sitting. Let's pray. Our Father uh, takes courage to go through all of your word, and I thank you for these, your people, who have that courage to come out and sit through an hour of very heavy-duty uh, information. But it's how we get from one point to another. There is a danger in skipping over and being too free and skimming. It calls for discipline to get to those prizes that you have for your people. And so with all of that, may you de indeed bless us more and more that not only do we grasp what is in your word with our minds and our intellect, but with our lives. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.